Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. Hello and welcome to the Get Your Film Fix podcast and the much-anticipated Fixie Award Show. This is our fourth annual, I guess it's sort of semi-annual, but hopefully will be annual uh, award show celebrating the year in movies, this, the 2018 year in movies, uh, with the best picture of the year, the performances, direction, screenplay, and cinematography. Uh, typically, you know, we, we go through each category and list our we're calling them nominations but they're really our top five in each category Um, the idea is we just basically go through five through one very much like you're used to with our top five lists at the end of each show Um, and unlike many other award shows that's how we gather our winner Uh, so once we've revealed what all of our picks are uh, we will do some math, crunch some numbers. I have several calculators going. You guys have some for backup, just in case. Yeah, uh, but basically, yeah, basically the number one on each of our lists gets five points, number two gets four, so on down. And we just add up those scores together, and that reveals our winner of each category, which we'll announce at the end of each category. Uh, so it's exciting. It's exciting for us, too. We get to see um, not only what each of our favorites of the year were, but ultimately what the Get Your Film Fix winner in each category is. Um, all right, you guys ready to kick things off with best cinematography? Oh, yeah. yes, and I just want to apologize um, for um, these sort of categories where I can't pronounce anyone's name. Yeah, people have grown used to that over the years. Um, all right, so I'm going to kick things off with my number five, and it is a bit of a curveball, and I apologize if this is not allowed, guys. I do have an alternate if uh, consensus says I have to change it, but it is Bing Lu for Minding the Gap. Why would you have to know? That's fine. That's a great pick. That's a great I mean, it's pick. a documentary. It's a documentary, um, but I but think it's that's a great But it's beautifully shot. Pick. I mean, yeah. the skateboard scenes come to mind first, of course. Amazing. Um, the way it's shot is it's mesmerizing. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the more I thought about it, the the way he chooses where to put his camera and how close to put his camera to his subjects during the interview scenes, I think is important. The scene that, of course, comes to mind is um, the one towards the end. And when he... Oh, and we do want to point out that this is a spoiler-free podcast. I should have mentioned that at the beginning. Uh, we want to make sure that everyone has the freedom to see these movies without spoilers. Um, but very pivotal scene at the end of Minding the Gap where something is revealed. Um, and where the camera is is really important to the reaction that you get. And I just think that's a smart decision. And, yeah, that goes to the direction. But that and combined with, uh, you know, like I said, those skateboarding scenes was, was fantastic. It was amazing to watch. It was beautiful. Yeah, I think um, that's a great pick. Uh, that's a great pick, and I'd also like to. I, I left documentaries off my list, but I'd like to throw um, uh, free solo onto that list as well as <clears throat> documentaries that had beautiful cinematography. I just left documentaries off my list, but free solo is beautifully shot as well. Okay. Yeah, I had I left them off my list of cinematography as well, um, but certainly. We might see him in other categories. Uh, that being said, my number five is uh, Matthew Labatique, who was the cinematographer for A Star is Born. That is a also movie, my number five. 
That's also your number five. Great. Uh, a movie that I just caught up with. I know you guys did the podcast a few months ago. Um, I just, similar to Minding the Gap, I like the intimacy of where he put the camera. And I like the intimacy of those two uh, with the backdrop of a concert and those thousands and thousands of people out there. But I, I really appreciated his decision making as to put the camera close to his subjects. Yeah. They made a really smart decision in that film to um, film kind of behind the actors or looking out into the crowd as opposed to the, you know, the traditional way that you see it. Um, and also right. this movie was shot anamorphically. Um, and I think that can often be a, a little bit of a, of a um, kind of a, a, you know, done just for, just to make things look cooler. But um, I think that kind of soft, you know, a lot of lens flares look uh, works really well for, you know, to kind of get the state of mind of these characters. So, yeah. And it also puts you instead of being a spectator in the crowd, it puts you on the stage with them, which I think is really important because it, it's how they are forming their relationship. Yep. Very good. Okay. My number four goes to Joshua James Richards. For the rider, Jeremy, I know you caught up with this movie, Chapin. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if you saw it. I did not. Um, I mean, so this is a movie you kind of go into considering its subject matter, um, and you're sort of expecting a beautiful film. And sometimes of I its have landscape. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Sometimes I have qualms about that. Um, the movie right. that oddly always comes to mind is Brokeback Broke Mountain. Uh, like you know where they're filming is beautiful does that mean the cinematography is beautiful but again i think it comes a little bit down to where the camera was put a lot of times and also a little bit of what he did with contrasting those beautiful landscapes and some of those beautiful shots with some things that weren't as beautiful to look at um you know some of the interiors in this movie um you know the the scenes when he's working in the grocery store are just kind of dull colors, and I just felt like that was an important juxtaposition and a smart choice, mm-hmm. and it paid off because, yes, it's beautiful to take a step back and look at these landscapes and you know these beautiful animals and just kind of the sunsets and all the things that are, are so, sort of, I don't want to say easy, but you know easy to, to make look great and capture on film and sucker you into saying, yes, best cinematography nod. Um, but here it's it's working within the you know um, a, a context to serve the story and to serve the the bigger picture, and I think that was smart and a, and a great choice. Yeah, and I think he didn't try to show off the landscape. He showed the landscape as those characters saw it, mm-hmm. which was still beautiful, but it was also every day. It was their yeah. home. It was an everyday experience. So he did a great job in not exploiting the landscape, but, but showing it through the character's eyes, and which is really important, especially in that story, and especially when you're dealing with a bunch of non-actors, which uh, we'll probably talk about a little bit more later. That being said, my number four is Rob Hardy from Annihilation. Wow. wow. I didn't think yeah. anything from Annihilation was going to make this list from you, Jeremy. It's the only it's the only mention of this movie um, that you will hear from me. But if you have to give this movie credit for anything, it's for its look. Um, it definitely brought you into that world that they were trying to create. 
Um, and I guess you got to give it credit for that. I mean, ultimately, I think the screenplay and the direction and maybe even the acting failed this movie, but it definitely was not the fault of the cinematographer. Wow. It's interesting. I mean, that might be our first example of something, Chapin, you brought up. Was it last week on the Destroyer podcast about um, separating the pieces when we're putting together our nominations? Sure. Um, and if you do listen back on the Annihilation podcast, you will hear Jeremy really pretty much tear that movie to pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but yet here it is, the second movie he mentions on the uh, prestigious award show for the Fixies. <laughs> Okay. Uh, well, my number four is Linus Sandgren from First Man. Yeah, I suspected this was going to come up on your list, Chapin. I haven't <laughs> he, seen it. He says with, with disappointment in his voice. No, 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 not at all. His voice. I, I, I was, I was, I thought the cinematography was really nice in this movie. It, it just didn't, uh, it didn't feel, it, it didn't leave an impression. Um, right. But we talked about, you know, that one scene in particular, the I believe Apollo Eight launch where the camera is in the shuttle and it doesn't leave and it's shaking and it's just a very visceral scene. And, and that was fantastic. So that's a huge credit to them. Yeah. I mean, um, I think this goes back to your point earlier, Lee, on your, the, your, your pick, your explanation for the writer. Um, I don't, I don't know that first man is a, is a beautiful film. And I think uh, with one exception on my list, I, I went with, you know, cinematography that I thought really aided the film as opposed to the most beautiful one. Um, and First Man is not a beautiful movie, but I think um, they made some really sort of strategic choices here, shooting on 16 millimeter for the um, the stuff at home with the with the Armstrongs, and then shooting on IMAX um, on the moon. That I think like really worked. A lot of that stuff can be gimmicky. I understand, you know, when you're like switching around on formats, but I really liked what it did with this movie and that sort of first person point of view aesthetic really worked. Um, and yeah, uh, that's my number four. All right. All right, my number three movie I just recently caught up with. Very glad that I did. And here we go. Kyung Pyo Hong for Burning. It's a Russian film. It's a <laughs> South Korean film. I feel like I did really well with his name there. I was thinking about abbreviating and just calling it KPH, but nobody would know who I was talking about. Um so a little bit about this movie very briefly. I don't want to get too deep into it, but it'll tie back to the cinematography here. Um, this movie takes place in South Korea, um, like right over the border of North Korea. In fact, in the background, you hear like the PA propaganda from North Korea. They're literally the town right next to the border. Um, but my God, what a beautiful place to go live, I think. Um, and... This might be an example of this is just a beautiful movie and whether or not the beauty of the cinematography totally serves the story, it doesn't hurt it, but whether or not it serves it is sort of irrelevant here. It's just such a beautiful movie to look at. In fact, there were I read something uh, from the cinematographer and the director that um, they actually had to cut some scenes. Apparently, the area is very foggy and there were some scenes with the fog in the morning that just looked so good that they had to cut it because it was distracting. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Um, that's a good that, problem that to have, to, I suppose. Yeah, that happened to me, too. As I made this amazing movie, but it just looked too good. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I had to cut every scene. It was too so beautiful. regardless of whether or not you want to believe that, um, it's such a beautiful movie to look at, and a little bit has to do with the landscapes, but some of the composed shots 
in this movie, one in particular of a, a shot of a greenhouse on fire with the character silhouetted in front of it is oh, um, is the, the the train scene in uh, Assassination of Jesse James Territory. Um, wow, it's, it's, that's saying it's How's amazing. that no, no, your number one? That's, that's wow. well, because the, the whole movie of Jesse James looks that good. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and yeah, it's 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 such an amazing uh, job um, filming this movie. And like I said, it's it's I don't know that it was all necessary to serve the story, like you mentioned, Chapin, with uh, First Man or with the Rider. But in some cases, it just doesn't matter. I don't think. All right, uh, my number three is Bruno Del Bono. Del Bonel. Del Bonel. Del Bonel. See. Sure. Uh, Ballad of Buster Scruggs the Coen brothers film. And it kind of, in a weird way, it kind of shows you how good the Coen brothers are because obviously they had Roger Deakins for many years and they've switched back and forth with cinematographers and they always seem to come up with these beautiful movies. Um, so yeah, my number three. Very nice. Yeah. It's tough to argue with. Um, he, the, I, what I love about his work in that movie is, he essentially is not filming the same movie the whole time. Right. You got all these different movies and you have, you have to take them separately. Um, and I'm sure he had to light everyone separately for a certain aesthetic and, uh, they each had their own feel to them. And that's, I mean, maybe he should get five Vixie nominations right, or whatever it was. He shot, um, uh, the, uh, um, inside Lewin Davis, which I thought was probably their most unique looking movie. Um, it's yeah. kind of got this glow effect to it. Um, that that's a marvelous movie, but I think uh, I can see why they went back with him for this movie when I'm sure Roger Deakins wasn't available. So mm-hmm. um, my number three is is my straight up beautiful movie. It's um, I was the coldest on it of the three of us um, when we podcast about it, and that's James Laxon for If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I. I it, this was my favorite part of the movie. It was gorgeous. Um, it, 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 I, I think it, I think it might have even really might have even hurt the movie how good the cinematography was because it sort of um, contrasted, uh, you know, the the sort of serious and depressing um, subject matter a little bit. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought it was outstanding and um, portrait esque for most of the movie. It's kind of amazing for me how quickly that movie be- became forgettable because you're right the cinematography was amazing and the way he and it might have had a lot to do with the direction because Moonlight was similar I don't know was he the cinematographer on Moonlight yes. yes okay so he is really good at photographing bodies um and See, I the think thing I was going to highlight is is the his use of color he yeah. does with he does the same with Moonlight, of course, and like I think that's what's sort of the highlight for me with him. Bold, boldly saturated he, colors, yeah, definitely. When you think of all those, both those films, like the first images that pop in my head are the as uh, everyone's faces. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah, that's a great pick. All right, my number two. Uh, I was perhaps the coldest on this movie amongst the three of us, um, but my biggest takeaway. Um, it had to do with the cinematography, and it's Robbie Ryan for the favorite. 
That's also my number two. That's also my number two. Okay, we're getting in that territory. (laughs) And I think we all know where number one's going then. (laughs) Um, This might be a a runaway fixie. Yeah, I mean, we spent a lot of time on the podcast um, talking about the cinematography in this movie. And, and of course, we encourage everybody to revisit these episodes if you want, you know, um, further insight on our thoughts on, on these movies. But... Again, like I, what comes to mind, I mean, obviously we talked a lot about the fisheye lens, but what comes to mind is is the the tripod spins that he does. Mm-hmm. And those sort of resonated with me because you don't really see that. You know, a tripod is, is like oddly like a antiquated tool when it comes to filmmaking now. Oh, yeah. Um, well, I think it was you, Chabin, that talked about how it must have been so unique to film it because it must have been because you see everything in a room, you see everything in like in the area. So, what is there? Just one cameraman, and then everybody else is at craft service. Yeah, everybody's outside yeah. the room. The, the sound guy's got the boom yeah. like completely vertical, so that you it's not in the frame. Yeah, it's crazy. It must have been <clears throat> been tough to do, but it especially a movie like that that. It, takes place on this you know estate it's it's really interesting to be able to see as much as you can see in every frame yeah uh okay so i i will admit that i've filled in your picks already for number one okay declared the winner so i hope i'm right but my number one for best cinematography goes to alfonso curan for roma that's your number one yes that's my number one that's my number one Okay. So I mean, you... was there? There was clearly not a more beautifully shot movie this year. I mean, if if you took if that was a silent film, I could watch it. Oh, for sure. Just oh just God. based on the cinematography and his shot selection and his um the, the how how the depth of field was so insane with his set design and everything he put into every frame. It's, it's amazing. Yeah, um, I mean, I'm 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 contrasting my I'm right above on my little notes here. I have my cinematography contrasted with my screenplay, um, and um, I mean, all of Roma is the visuals, right? I mean, like that is the main source of storytelling. It is everything in that movie comes from the visuals. Yeah, um, and and uh, so so not only is it gorgeous, but like everything is told through that camera and he does it so well um and i think lee you brought up uh the fact that um chivo lubeski wasn't on this film as uh, he was in the he was actually on in prep as i later found out but they had to because they took so much time making it he had to leave the movie and uh kuran had to get a job (laughs) he had to make the movie and shoot it himself and um i mean you wouldn't tell you couldn't tell that it was his first time uh and I think he developed his own style. I think that was heavily influenced, you know, by his work with uh, Lubeski and other movies. But man, just astounding! It, it's a good point to, to for the argument how annoying the Oscar nominations are this year because Roma is strictly a visual film, like you said, Jape, and yet here it is with a best original screenplay nod. Yeah. Was it nominated for Best Cinematography? It had to have been. Yes. Okay. Um, well, the one last th- thing I'll, I'll say about uh, about Quran with this movie, and, and I'm still, you know, having this debate in my head, you know, Jeremy, 
um, we kicked off that Roma podcast with the question on whether or not this was Alfonso Cuaron's masterpiece. And I, I sort of broke it into categories on like, you know, all the things that he does well, where does this movie fall? And I'm still sort of thinking about it. Okay, technically, you know, or visually, is this his best movie? And it's, it's hard to say because he has movies like Gravity and Children of Men. But it might be like just in the way that those those technical aspects of this movie serve the story. I don't know. Like it, it's this could be his. Best I mean, work. for me, I know Chapin loves uh, gravity, I, and but, I do too. Yeah, but uh, and Children of Men actually is is pretty fucking fantastic. But this one hits you on a more uh, human level than than Gravity does. Well, I think. Oh well, yeah, and that's what I mean about serving the story. Like I, you know. Uh, gravity just the nature of that movie has to be sort of a, a technical masterpiece children of men let's be honest is is showy um not that that's a bad thing we love it but uh here i don't know like just i think it has to be it, it has to be some of his best work when it comes to serving the story and i and i don't know i i don't know that i have i, I can say definitively yes this is his best work uh visually but it it might be and right. the fix he goes to. Let me get to. the envelope here in case there's any uh, question. <clears throat> Just takes a second to open it. Oh, yeah. And the fix he goes to, Alfonso Cuaron for Roma. Best cinematography of the year. Nice. Wow. Good job. Applause. Uh, let's move on to our next category, Best Supporting Actress. Jeremy, why don't you kick things off? Well, this is going to come as a surprise to you guys, but... Uh... <laughs> It's Elizabeth Debicki in Widows. She was the one that played the uh, tall blonde. Yes. Okay, you know who I'm talking about. Great. Yeah. Uh, I liked where she went with this. Um, it, it started out, pr- I mean, there was a, a pretty quick transition, but I, I liked how she used her wits and um, her physicality to make way in this movie and i think she did a really good job and she had to uh quite a range to to work with uh i was really impressed with her she was my biggest takeaway from that movie in terms of performances as well mm-hmm. um and yep. if you listen to the podcast you'll hear that and you'll also hear that i wasn't a huge fan of viola davis and michelle rodriguez so well, um that was michelle rodriguez's best performance and that's not saying much yeah yeah well, tallest midget in munchkin land <laughs> yeah, um, I liked Debicki uh, in this move. In this movie, um, she actually, uh, I had her in consideration for a performance in another movie that she was in this year called The Tale, um, which wasn't particularly good. And um, Laura Dern actually got a lot, a little bit of buzz for her performance in it, which I actually thought she was pretty bad. But Debicki uh, was really good in it, and in Widows, again, like I said, she was my takeaway. I thought she was. Yeah, great. she definitely stood out amongst a really good cast overall. Um, yeah, that's and, true. Yeah, and like I said, I think she she had a lot to work with as far as the change in her character, um, and and using certain elements to get what she needed in this in this film, and I think she took advantage of that. Great. Uh, my number five is Mackenzie Davis from Tully. Um, just quickly, I, I, uh, I, I thought she just, she just became that character in, in a really nice way. You know, like I think, I think, it could, I think it could have become 
she could have been very over the top and annoying, um, but she was very nurturing and yet kind of quirky. And, you know, we are very often critical of those sort of quirky characters, especially in um, (laughs) Jason Reitman movies. But um, I thought she was great. I thought she like, you know, uh, there's there's all this like, you know, what 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 really does it mean when you are a supporting actor or actress? Um, and is that just me? Does that just mean you're a smaller role? But really, I thought she was a great supporting actress in that, you know, she has to mirror in a way um, uh, Charlize Theron's character. And um, I thought she just did a great job. And that's my number five. Excellent. Yeah, it's a, it's a good pick. I actually would have to go back to the podcast to remember even what I thought about her because she was so over uh, overshadowed by Charlize Theron in that movie for me. But um yeah, good pull. <clears throat> All right, my number five is Amy Ryan from Beautiful Boy. Um, wow, this is a melodramatic performance for sure. Um, Oof. Okay, and a, and a very small one too. It is. Yeah. It is a very small role. But what I what I actually really appreciated about this role is a lot of it's actually off screen. Yeah, um, the phone. phone conversations with Steve Carell, and you got all the emotions. You got you understood their relationship through those conversations. Um, yeah, they, didn't they meet? They met at a, they met when they worked at Dunder Mifflin, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> that did yeah. not turn out well. <laughs> yeah, you would have thought this would have gone differently that they would have stayed together, but um, <laughs> I didn't even think of that. What a good connection! <laughs> um, yeah, no, I I really liked it. She was a last minute addition. I was going back and forth between a couple performances for my number five on this list. Um, uh, but I, I, I recently took a peek back uh, at Beautiful Boy, and it was a standout for that movie for me. And I, I just think... Um, Lee, can I ask you... Like is, I said, it was a small role, but yeah, go ahead. Is an, is, is someone else from that movie going to be on this list? Well, we'll see. Uh, it's certainly possible. Okay. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, no, look, I liked her. I love Amy Ryan. Uh, I was, you know, and I think, you know, perhaps she's even best in roles like this, um, supporting roles... Um, I don't know that she's ever she's ever starred in anything. I don't know. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't. No, think I think you're had. right. Um, and that's you know that's not necessarily a bad thing. But like I said, uh, it's certainly melodramatic, especially towards you get towards the get towards the end. Um, she has some melodramatic scenes, but uh, I loved her in this movie. I thought she was fantastic. See, I I thought she was forgettable in that movie. Yeah, really? I thought it could too. have been like almost anybody. I I like Mira more a tyranny better. Yeah. Then I like Amy Ryan. I thought she at least brought something slightly unique to it. I, th- I thought the, the Amy Ryan tortured uh, mother role. Just... Oh, see, I, I didn't take it that way. I thought, I thought, I mean, it was that was what it was, but I don't think it came across that way. I thought it came across as someone that was that was sort of unable to, you know, do anything. Like she was, she was in Los Angeles while much of the movie takes place in San Francisco. Um, and I don't know, like, th- there were a lot of things about this movie that I responded to, um, and, and one being just kind of that inability to help, even though you're sort of right there. Like, you, you, it's out of your hands, and I just thought that she pulled that off. All right. Uh, agree to disagree on that one. But either way, it's one point towards a fixie win. <laughs> yeah, for, for Amy Ryan. All right, you're number four, Jeremy. My number four is... Nicole Kidman in Boy Erased. Wow. She was, to me, easily the best part of that movie. Um, there was, 
uh, some sympathy there that I feel like she brought to the role that could have been totally ignored if by another actor, like straight from the beginning. Um, and uh, yeah, I think she definitely was the standout in also a very good cast. Yeah. And one of, what, five films she did this year? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, Yeah, she may get multiple Fixie Awards. Yeah. There's the agree to disagree for me. I, I, was, I was not particularly impressed with her in this movie. And that, that isn't to say she was bad. I just, you know, I didn't find her to be particularly good, um, barring that one scene towards the end where I thought she was excellent. Uh, well, let's, let's look this up. So uh, Amy Ryan has one Fixie nomination, but Nicole Kidman now has two Fixie nominations. Just saying. How so? Because, uh, wait, Amy Ryan was your number... Was my number five. Five, yeah. Nicole Kidman number four. Oh, you mean two points. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, so she's winning at this point. <clears throat> well, let me... But when Amy Ryan from Beautiful Boys champions number one... Hold yeah. on. Well, yeah. let me... Yeah. everything. Okay. <laughs> my number four is Elizabeth Debicki from Widows, so wow. now she's in the lead. Ooh, now she is in the lead. What do you like about her performance, Jabin? Um... I mean, I, 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 unlike Lee, thought that movie was full of good performances, Michelle Rodriguez uh, excluded, but um, I, she was the standout for me. She was someone who actually had a, an arc in this film. Um, she started out feeling very weak and being slapped around by, uh, what's her name, from Animal Kingdom. And, her mom and her husband. Yeah. Um, and then she found that power, and I thought she was the most interesting character in a movie where I don't think they Easily. knew she was the most interesting character. Um, yeah, the characters in that in yeah. the movie, and yeah, that's a good way to put it. That's very that's interesting. I remember reading this is the only movie where she like she's been in a lot of stuff. She's six four, and it's the only movie she's ever been able to like. They've actually like you know made her be her her real height, and I thought oh, she's gorgeous and like, but her, she's sort of unique looking in that sense. And I thought that was really um, she's really nice. Six four, yeah. I mean, I knew she was obviously taller than everybody else, but that's crazy. Yep. Okay, Chapin. Um, normally, when you know our thunder is stolen on these lists, we curse and call people out and then make replacements. But I'm sorry, she's six two. She's six two. <laughs> still, still impressive. Yeah. Um, yeah, we we you know curse each other out and make yeah. replacements and move things around. But this is the fixies. These lists are set in stone, uh, signed and sealed. Mackenzie Davis from Tully is my number four. Oh wow. Um, you said it really nicely, Chapin. Um, this could have been the over-the-top, quirky, manic, pixie dream girl performance, and she just didn't let that happen. Um, she knew her role as a supporting character here, and I, I thought it was fantastic. I thought she was the she she embodied this representation of like who we want to be and nostalgia and all those things, and it did it with like the perfect amount of subtlety. Um, and while overshadowed, I don't maybe strong, but yeah, the the highlight um, performance-wise of this movie, not to you know, spoil any future categories may have been Charlie Theron, but I think this movie hinged on Mackenzie Davis's performance. Without that, it doesn't, I, I don't know how much this movie worked anyway, but it doesn't work at all without yeah. the performance she gives. Yep. That's a great point. So yeah, my number four. So now we got a tie between <laughs> Mackenzie Davis and Elizabeth Debicki. I don't know. What Oof. To... All right. Exciting, feeling guys. Might... This is real exciting. It is. Yeah. All right, my number three is a name I'm sure it's going to be going to come up again, but it's Emma Stone in The Favorite. 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, we've had we had this debate kind of Lee, like like where where's the line between uh, you know best actress, best supporting actress, and then yep. here you got a movie that has three characters that you could kind of bounce anywhere, which is what's so great about it, and everybody holds their own, oh, so yeah. it's only a matter of minute differences where you can separate the three of them, and I guess that's what we're doing here. But I I, I give Emma Stone. Um, you know, a ton of credit for even doing this movie because it's not a very Emma Stone movie. No, yeah. Like, it's way out of her comfort zone or what we think of her and her comfort zone. And she just goes for it. And um, I think she's great. I think she's really great. And she holds her own against these other two women who obviously do a fantastic job as well. Um, but of the three, she's slightly towards the bottom of that list. But here she is. Uh, number three on the best supporting actress list of a fixie, so yep. that's gotta gotta mean a lot to her. I, I think it's I think it's the best I've ever seen her, but she is a victim of her her past, unfortunately for me, and did not make my list. But um, she okay, yeah. Why? What? What about her past makes her a victim? I, I I just don't care for her as an actress. Yeah, it's it's difficult. Yeah. I, I, I we talked like we talked about on the podcast like it that's that makes it sort of backwards like that makes no sense that be, uh, uh, an actress you don't like it seems like would have a lower bar to to show up on a on a best of list of some kind but in her case it it sort of is a higher bar uh, i don't know i think if that's what you're suggesting Jake, yeah i don't really i've always felt I don't really get it because they can turn you you know like yeah. a good performance all of a sudden can turn you and i yeah. think this was hers Okay, uh, is it my turn? My number three. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this uh, actress, I am gonna. I, I would imagine that she would have been marketed as best actress, but I feel like this is a supporting character, so I'm gonna put her in. And that's uh, Claire Foy from First Man. Lee, I know you were not a fan of this performance. Um, I was not. But I I liked her a lot. I thought she had um, just a genuineness, a realness, a sort of. Um, just like uh, just some just something about her i i just i i just felt that i i believed her um and you know um i i think it was a uh, you know the, these in in the in the sense that first man was kind of a unconventional take on a very conventional story um i found her performance that way too in that you know she is this you know the the housewife who's you know worried about her man you know doing risky things and we've seen that character and performance many many times but she did it in a way that i thought was um unique and interesting and i liked her interaction with um uh with ryan gosling they had a kind of a nice rapport together and yeah she's my number three yeah, she was a victim of the script for me and and again that's probably an example of me not being able to separate the pieces um, I, I really like Claire Foy. She's actually sort of this, one of these rising actresses that I am really excited to see everything that she's in. And, and <clears throat> it comes from uh, uh, not seeing a lot of her, just enough to kind of see the potential there. Um, so it was a bit of a disappointing year for her for me. With I, I didn't particularly like her in First Man. I didn't see the um, Dragon Tattoo movie, but it got terrible reviews, which was a disappointment. But... Um, uh, I, I'm no less interested in seeing what she has coming because I think she's an excellent actress, but I wasn't a fan of her in First Man. Um, 
Okay, so contrary to everything I sort of agreed with Chapin on regarding Jeremy's pick, Emma Stone from The Favorite is my number three. Um, look, I, I, st- I still stand by the fact that I'm more pleased with her decision to do this role, and I think that is the highlight for me, but I, I just don't think there's any denying the quality of her performance here. Um, it, it's really good, and it's it, the, the subtleties of it are smart, and I have was harder on it than perhaps was uh, deserved during our podcast for The Favorite, um, and it is it is the best that I've seen her, and I'm going to give her credit for that. Well, right now, she if, if it were to end right now, she'd be walking away with a fixie. Yeah, wow. that's true. To add, to add to her Oscar. Well, she probably put the Oscar away. and That's true, yeah, obviously. At that point. <laughs> Don't need this anymore. All right, my number two is Regina King in If Beale Street Could Talk. Again, somehow I, I enjoyed this movie walking out of it, but it became pretty forgettable pretty fast for me. But the thing that sticks with me is Regina King's performance in it. Uh, there, she had... A couple scenes in particular that were very showy, but she didn't deliver them like, hey, look at me, I want an Oscar. Yeah. She right. delivered them like, hey, I'm a mother that's in trouble. I need help. And there's a big difference between those two. Um, and that's where I want to give her all the credit. So, number two, Regina King, if Beale Street could talk. Nice pick. So, I want to ask you guys something about about this because I'm just kind of curious if you think this makes sense. Um, she obviously no. was the um, she was sort of the buzz around this movie. She got a lot of the nominations. Um, she got one of the few nominations at the Oscars for that movie uh, despite some of the praise and expectations. Um, so I went into this movie with an, you know, a certain level of expectation when it came to her performance, uh, which I did think was really good and I liked a lot, but she did not make my list. Um, and I'm wondering if my standard or my bar was high for her because of those expectations. If you think that has something to do with it, because I like, I think, her, so. I know, think and, so. I think if you saw it in a vacuum, yeah, she would be the standout yeah. for right. you, and yeah. you'd you'd point it out. But I do agree that she had already had the buzz walking into that movie. Yeah. Um, she's but, a, she was a standout for me. It's it's hard to, um, and I guess Mackenzie Davis. I mean, I, maybe I've I, I've I've sort of warmed to Tully, um, but. It's hard to pick out a performance from a movie that just wasn't particularly memorable, like Jeremy's been saying. Um, right. At least for me. So, is yeah. it? Is it my turn? Uh, sure, it is. is. Yep. Number okay. two. Number my two. number two is oh, pronunciations here. Um, Jung Su Jun from Burning. Oh, you did see it, Javen. I saw it last night. Great. I don't even know uh, how to write this person's name down. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's J-O-N-G-G, uh, uh, sla- uh, what's that called? Dash I'll look, SEO. I'll, I'll look it up. Okay. I mean, she's probably not going to win, so I don't have to say it. <laughs> um, I don't know. That's a that's number uh, two. I, I uh, really liked points. her, and I'm glad. Th- th- I felt like, I think this is my most interesting category. Um, and I, 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 I thought she was great. I mean, she is like sort of the center point of the, of the film without giving too much away. Um, and you know, in a way, uh, like Mackenzie Davis, she is a version of this. What was it, Lee? The the pixie, the manic pixie dream girl, manic yeah. pixie no, dream totally. girl. Yep. Um, and uh, she she just pulls it off in an extraordinary way. There is a um, there's a lot of long shots in this movie, uh, much like some of the other films we've talked about 
so far, um, where she just has to tell the story and starts crying um, in this restaurant and and then proceeds to fall asleep. And she's able to <laughs> do that in a way that's kind of fantastic. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I recommend seeing this film just so you can get a glimpse of her. Great pick. Okay. Um Jeremy. On to the number ones. Wow, this is going to be No, I got my everything. number. I got my number two oh, still. Good thing I didn't say anything. <laughs> yeah, you call me. My number two, um, Jeremy. You you mentioned that you liked Maura Tierney in Beautiful Boy more than Amy Ryan, as did I. She is my oh, number two. Look at um, this beautiful boy. It's just getting way I, more. Man, did I love her in this movie? Like, what a surprise too. I mean, not that I have any feelings one way or the other towards Maura Tierney, but. I thought she was amazing here. Um, and I weirdly had a crush on her for a long time when she was on news radio. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Another I, office I think alum. She encapsulates, <laughs> I think she encapsulates supporting character here. I mean, her her performance is supporting, but her character is supporting. And I think she does that so well. Like She knows both as an actress and as a character when to step in, when to step back, when it's her, when it's her turn to say something. Um, you know, she understands her role in, you know, the life of of Steve Carell and Timothy Chalamet's relationship. Um, that, and then I think all that puts the, it, she gets her moment at the end. And I think it just makes it that much more powerful. But wh- she, which I moment she are you amazing. talking about when she drives the van? Oh, after yeah. them. That's um, an extraordinary scene. I mean, that amazing. might that might be the most moving scene in the whole movie. Yeah, I agree. And, it was it was tough to watch that scene to sit there and be with her yeah. in that van. Yep. And you're like, what is she going to do when she catches something? Yeah. yeah. She didn't know. No, she doesn't. She know. didn't know. Yep. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And you and, could see that on her face. It yep, was it absolutely. was a good performance for sure. And I just love the scenes where she, you know, they go to you know the they go to the um the group where it's basically you know grieving parents or parents um who have you know uh, loved ones who are addicts. And she just sits there like she just you can see that she's just there because she knows that her husband has to go. Yeah. Um, you know, she has a family of her own. They have two children together and she doesn't she never says like, hey, you have to be there for these children. Like she understands what he's going through. And I just think, you know, none of that was in the in the lines of dialogue. That was all in her performance. It, she very nearly made my number one for best supporting actress. I thought she was amazing in this movie. I told you guys I read this book and I, I felt like, you know, uh, you know, not surprisingly, Steve Carell didn't really match up to my image of uh, his character in, from the book. And, you know, neither oh, I didn't realize you read the book. Neither did Timothy Chalamet to, to some extent. Um, but she is almost exactly who I what I pictured from the from really? the book. And um, yeah, I thought she was great. OK, uh, Jeremy, you're number one. Number ones. All right. So my number one is. I have a feel. I have a weird feeling this is going to be a sweep, but I don't know. It's a uh, Rachel Vice from The Favorite. <laughs> that's my is number. It going around the world. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yep, we've got a sweep. Oh, we got shit. another sweep at number one. This is getting less and less exciting. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's talk about her though. Well, I fell in love yeah. with her, so maybe that's that's one thing. It's amazing, right? She still is, looks amazing. I mean, she has a yeah, just Jesus. I mean, she was both wicked and manipulative and smart and caring and like she just displayed all these different qualities so easily from one to the next. So fluently she went through them that, you know, I was just 
you know, that's why that's why she's number one for all of us. That's interesting. See, I, I, I me, thought I thought I was going to come out of this and you guys are going to be like, what? I didn't think I thought I was the only one who liked her. So I'm glad. Oh, no, not not at all. I thought she, she was has a, an amazing presence on screen. Like she yes. demands your attention. And 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 what is great about that in this movie is that and the reason it works so well is that, you know, because she commands that attention when she's challenged by Emma Stone's character, you're taken aback. You're like, what? This doesn't, this isn't right. This is not what's supposed to be happening. Um, and I think, you know, it's an example of the performance serving the story. Yeah, I don't I don't even know what else to that's say about point. her. And I, I think she will win the Oscar, not that that's as big a deal. Really? You think she will? I think so. She hasn't, I, I don't so. think she's won anything. Maybe she won, a, she might have won the BAFTA, but yeah, I, I would love to see that happen. Because she won for uh, Constant Gardner, another one, another great movie from about. Regina King is probably going to win, yeah. I, I think, actually. Um, Amy Adams, please. Yeah, seriously. Um, okay, and the fixie goes to Rachel Weiss for the favorite. Okay, let's move on now to Best Supporting Actor. Chapin, actor. Okay. Uh, you will kick things off with our number fives. Okay. Well, my number five is a Steven Yoon from Burning. Um, I, uh, he played Ben? He played the character of Ben, yes. Um, and his character, again, without giving too much away, is supposed to be very um, kind of elusive and mysterious in the mind of our protagonist. And I thought he pulled that off very well. And at the same time, you know, he could also just be a nice, affable young man. Well, not considering his hobbies. Um, right. But uh, I, I, I just not liked him sure. a lot. Um, you know, I, 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 I've seen him play Glenn in uh, uh, The Walking Dead where, you know, he's screaming and covered in sweat the whole time. And this was such a far different performance and such a subtle one that I, uh, I enjoyed it a lot. And I thought his mannerisms... Um, despite, you know, speaking Korean felt very familiar to me. I think often when, you know, Lee, you've talked a little bit about this, about reading subtitles, you kind of lose the performance a little bit the first time you yep. see it because you're reading the subtitles and it's a different language. Um, but I, I found his um, mannerisms very familiar and um, I liked his performance a lot. Uh, I liked it too. I mean, he what what I thought was really interesting is he he certainly played up the mysteriousness of himself. Like, that was an intentional choice, but it was subtle enough to make sure that you could kind of see him, like you said, as that sort of affable, likable character that wins over um, the other characters to a certain extent. So I, I thought it was it, it was a really nice balance that he played between the two. Oh, yeah. All right. My number five is Richard E. Grant from Can You Ever Forgive Me? Um, this was This had to have been a fun role to play. Um, and that was my initial takeaway that especially even the first couple scenes you see him in, um, he plays, you know, sort of a flamboyant, uh, fun alcoholic, drunk. drunk. Yeah, fun drunk um, is a good way to put it. But the performance is behind his eyes. Uh, mm -hmm. It's the sadness, the loneliness, the regret. You know, a lot of it is unspoken and unshown characterizations that I felt uh, elevated this character in the movie and um you know gave it the importance that was necessary um and the fact that it was done with subtlety was important because it could have been 
an over-the-top character that was fun to watch and a fun role to play and chewed the scenery to a certain extent. Yeah, it, it could have almost that. been slapsticky in a way. Yeah, totally. If he, if he didn't have that um, weight to him, like yep. you say, you saw it behind his eyes. So, yeah. And, and he was a good person. Like, you know, again, we're avoiding spoilers, but when he and Melissa McCarthy sort of... Um, part ways i guess for lack of a better description of what happens um you know he didn't really do anything wrong and he he's sorry and you know you you see that but they don't write they don't tell you that they don't come out and and this is a a credit a bit to the script as well but you know it's not just you know blurted out being like let's let's make sure you know that this guy's sympathetic like it's it's all in the performance and and I, i appreciate that i appreciated that quite a bit yeah it's a good pick um so my number five is just to show the audience we we can have fun around here too we're not just it's not just an uptight award show oh i hope this is what i'm thinking not stuffy i'm gonna go with josh brolin as thanos in the avengers so glad you put that because his performance is the reason that movie works you yep. got a supervillain that's not always villainous. You got a supervillain that you have some sympathy for, and um, it's, or if you're in my case, root for, <laughs> or or if you're Lee, you root for him. <laughs> and it's kind of an amazing performance because it's not just Josh Brolin in makeup; it's Josh Brolin behind a lot of CGI, and yet you still, in his voice and in his eyes, you see something that is relatable in in a weird way it's relatable even though you're on different planets you're fighting superheroes and you want to kill half the population of the world he yep. makes that he makes that super villain uh relatable to the audience so yeah and Jeremy, correct me if i'm wrong but like me you haven't seen uh any of the lead up with him in any of the other movies no this is the well, no, I think I saw the first Avengers. Was he in that? I don't. I don't. I saw the first Avengers, but I he think wasn't they allude to him. In yeah, it. maybe. But, but I haven't seen uh, he never, he in never, any role yet. He did the voice in like a um, in one of the tags at the end, but he never actually yeah. performed as him until yeah, now. yeah. But I've he's been in other before. Marvel movies, correct, Japen? No, no. Oh, really? This is the he first did, time you he, see him. He did the voice as Thanos, but it was like a Thanos. An animated Thanos. It wasn't him performing as oh, Thanos. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, regardless, I knew no backstory of him. Um, I got the... I, I empathized with him. Um, yeah, I mean, here, me and Jeremy are gushing over an Avengers movie. Who the hell would have thought? Um, I mean, it's... It, well, but, I wouldn't say gushing. I, I'm yeah, gushing no, I'm over just, that decision that they made to make this person... I'm so person glad you have this on your list, though. Yep. ...sympathetic, which was really smart to do because... especially you have this movie where you have virtually no stakes or you go into it feeling like there are no stakes because you have all the world's super um, heroes together trying, you know, fighting off this villain. You're like, yeah, of course, like, you know what's going to happen or you think you know what's going to happen. What can this bring to it? And it was really smart of them and, and also through Josh Brolin's performance to have this villain have some understanding at least for him even if you don't have sympathy especially if you're not rooting for him you have some understanding and a lot of that has to do with josh brolin's performance and i think it's worth mentioning 
Yeah. Yeah, I'm very glad you did. I'm very glad you did. Okay, uh, my number four is Sam Elliott in The Star is Born. Um, I think, you know, a little bit of a predictable pick, but um, I went back and saw this movie for a second time. One of the few on amongst these lists that I did get to see for uh, twice. Um, and I think his performance really kind of came out on that second um, that second viewing. I, I was critical of his and um, uh, Bradley Cooper's performance, in, uh, or not performance, but their relationship in A Star is Born. And I think the subtleties of his character really came out for me on that second viewing. And I'm glad I saw it a, a second time so that I could reward him with my number four. See, he didn't make my list because I think the screenplay really hurt him, in my opinion. It was, the dialogue was very, I, I don't know, written. Like, there was a lot of, you know, fuck you and fucking this and fuck Every yeah. other word had to be emphasized by a swear word to get the emotion across that wasn't coming across in his performance. And I thought that really took away from something he probably could do without that. That's a fair point. I liked Sam Elliott a lot, as I alluded to on the Star is Born podcast. Um, so I like that pick, Chapin. I'm glad you've come around on him. Uh, my number four is an actor by the name of Anders Danielson Lee, who plays Anders Brevik in 22 July. Oh, nice. The feel-good movie of the year. He was Paul great. Greengrass. He was great. You saw that, Chapin? I, I, Jeremy, saw, did you see it? I saw most I of not. it. Um, so it's a, it's a Netflix movie. Um, like I said, another, um, you know, upper from Paul Greengrass, much in the vein of United 93. Um, it tells the story of the, the, the worst thing in that's happened in a country's history. It's kind of, yeah. kind of his specialty. Uh, yes, exactly. Um, so, uh, Anders, Anders Danielson Lee plays, um, the shooter. He essentially, he, he bombs, um, bombs a truck outside, uh, the uh, police station or the city hall or something in um, the capital of Norway. And then he goes to this island where there's this, um, I guess it's like a summer camp of sort, like a politically oriented summer camp of sorts. Yeah. Um, and just starts picking everybody off, just shooting everybody. Um, so mass shooting on that island. Um, and that actually, most of that takes place at the beginning of the movie. Much of it is actually about the aftermath um, but he is stone cold in this movie and God, he's scary. His eyes, like when he stares you down, um, you're like, okay, this guy is, is scary. I, I don't know how else to describe it. And I just, I don't know. I wanted to just see more of him. Like, I just thought this was a fascinating, um, look into his mind and he was clearly, I guess disturbed, but knew what he was doing, admitted to what he was doing, wanted to make sure everybody knew that he knew what he was doing. And I, I don't know. I find that type of stuff sort of fascinating. Um, I tend to uh, read books on things like that. And I don't, you know, I, I, I don't know what that says about me. I think a lot of people are probably like that, but um, I, I thought he encapsulated this really well. Um, this movie was good. Um, I, I want. I'm glad it was this. It's not gonna. You're not gonna see it anywhere else on any of my lists. Uh, but I was glad I was able to discuss it with through his performance. Nice. Oh, is All it right, my where turn? are we? Jeremy's up. Number four. Yeah. All right. So this is a performance that was all in the face. He had very few lines of dialogue. I don't even think he had. Yeah, of course he did. He, but. Um, 
it's Harry Melling in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs oh, meal ticket. Nice. I'm so glad Excellent. you put him on there. Uh, and the reason I hesitated about did he have dialogue is because in my mind it's all about yeah, it's in between yeah. his performances. He doesn't have any dialogue that when he's not performing. Though. When he's not right. performing, yeah. he he can obviously he can speak. He's not a mute, and uh, he's an actor that performs in front of people. Um, but his performance is all about as the crowds get smaller and smaller and as he has to sort of deal with Liam Neeson's character and his decisions, <laughs> it's in his eyes. And it's quite amazing the sympathy that he can garner from the, from the viewer and also the horror he can garner from the viewer as, you're, as you continue to keep watching that uh, short film. So... My number four. It's a great choice. Great pick. Uh, my number three is a young man named Timothy Chalamet from the film Beautiful Boy. Um, I, you could make an argument that this is not a supporting actor role, but yeah. I think it is. I think uh, Steve Carell is the star of that movie. Um, and I, I have been a little uh, reticent of the rise of Til- Timothy Chalamet. I've, I, I was not crazy about him in... Um, uh, fuck Call me by your name. Actually, I, I liked him in that. Um, but uh, in um, Lady Bird, uh, I liked him in Call Me by Your Name. I wasn't. He probably would have been on my list, but de- definitely would not have been my top pick in that. But in in this movie, I think he he kind of he kind of made me, you know, interested in what he will do going forward. Um, I think he is able to hit those highs and lows really nicely. And I think he embodied that the spirit of an addict in a way in that sort of desperation, um, that was really fitting. And I think, um, I, I am starting to see why people like him. I think that's I'm going to reserve pick. my comments on Chalamet at the moment. Yeah. We'll, we'll talk about him in a little, in a little bit. Okay. Lee, you're up. Uh, I'm up my number three is Tom Waits from Buster Scruggs. Um, I liked Harry Melling quite a bit. Um, you know, there's only five slots on this list, and I... Honestly, liked... three of them could go to Buster Scruggs. Of course, yes. <laughs> and um, I liked the All Gold Canyon story the best, and it was... I mean, I very much like Harry Melling. That scene was just all Tom Waits. Um you know, I, I'm starting to think that there, it, it may be Harry Melling, but there wasn't really a close second for me. I just think he was amazing. Um, I've I've gone back and watched Buster Scruggs again, um, and it just only elevated his performance in this scene. Um, it, it's incredible. Like, he's all by himself. He's just talking to himself, but, like, the things that he's saying, the simple one lines that he's saying, he's like, I'm going to find you. Nope only three you know just kind of those little things just like stream of consciousness that i think he pulls off so well and you know then obviously as you get to the end of that scene uh when things get a little more emotional and he gets more uh more agitated and excited he pulls that off as well it's just an amazing performance he he's become more of a performer than an actor if that makes sense because obviously he's a musician first and i think he's like translated those skills onto the screen sure and you want to sort you want to watch him and he gives these great performances but 
I don't know. It's not like he's he's. I wouldn't define him as like giving these acting performances. I I'd say he's more giving these performances. I don't know if that makes any sense, but I think obviously it doesn't. But I understand kind of what you're saying. Yeah. Um, No, it doesn't. But I understand. (laughs) No, I get it. He does. He just feels like he's you know almost on a stage. Like it's a one man show. Like right. Yeah. All right, so yeah, it was your number three, right, Lee? Yeah, so you're on three for you. Yeah. Number three for me, and it's a person you've already mentioned. It's Richard E. Grant in Can You Ever Forgive Me? And to add to what you were saying earlier, they could have had a scene where he has that moment where he breaks down and he cries and he says "I'm either I'm sorry or my life's a mess or this is happening to me or all that, but they never let him have that. They never, and I think that's a very wise decision because he always stays that sort of jovial, fun-loving person, even though you know he's dealing with a lot. And the fact that you know that and that he can um, uh, show that to the audience without having had that scene is really impressive by him. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I think that, and like I said, I think that the script deserves some credit perhaps um, when it comes to that. Like it's, it's disciplined in that way. Um, but you know, I also, we've seen so many roles where this character is, you know, over the top or just, you know, undisciplined and, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's fun, it's, you know, it's cool to watch the fun drunk. It's cool to watch the loud character and they call attention to themselves for a reason, but it doesn't always serve the story. It's not always the smart decision and here the smart decision is made. So I agree. All right, Chapin. Okay, your number two. My number two is Daniel Kaluuya in Widows. Really? Yeah, wow. I, I, I know you didn't like him very much, Lee. But um, no, I did like him in it. But yeah, I'm he was he's fine. He was very, very scary to me. I thought he again in in, in defining a supporting performance. You know, he he every scene he was in, and they they were few and far between. He was electric and scared the shit out of me. And again, um, you know, we've seen him be so affable in. Um, get out and you know so charming and and in this film he's just he's got that you know hundred yard stare um uh, and he, he i think he he kind of uh you know did what 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 you what you needed um uh, tyree henry to do you know be that kind of like fear of these of these guys and i i did not fear brian tyree henry's character but I, this being his brother i think added that sort of layer to it yeah, I think I think he's a rising star. Honestly, I mean, now you know you look at movies. I feel like, like he's already know, there. Yeah, well, he's I think already Widows, there. I think Widows is is one that definitely does it. But you know, we see, we I think about him and uh, Get Out, of course, which is a big uh, uh, um, big role for him. But like, he was great in Sicario. Amazing um, in Sicario. Yeah, so I just think you know uh, this is somebody certainly to keep an eye on. I liked him in this movie. I just I, I, agree. I don't know that he um, you know held that kind of weight for me. Yeah, but I, I I did go come away from this movie thinking, geez, like what a difference between this and the other films I've seen him in. Yeah, and yeah. being able to pull that off, so he does deserve credit for that. I wouldn't, you know, necessarily have thought of him for this list, but um, yeah, I mean, he was a terrifying individual in this, and you believed it. Mm-hmm. You believed it just as much as you believed him in, say, Sicario or Get Out. Which, you know, of course, is a credit to his acting. 
Okay. Sam Elliott from A Star is Born is my number two. Um, I like this. We're all over the board. We're going to have a very interesting win. This is a a performance that stuck with me. I I raved about him on the Star is Born podcast. Um, Unlike you, Jeremy, I felt like a lot of what he gave was under the surface and unspoken. There were those scenes, you know, the scenes where Bradley Cooper runs and punches him in the face. You sold dad's land, all that stuff. And yeah, that's there. But I don't know. I just kind of what I liked a lot about it. And I mentioned it on the podcast is that, you know, the conversations that you felt like uh, his character needed to have with Bradley Cooper or should have should have with Bradley Cooper. I feel like we're already had before the movie began. And I learned that from his performance. And I just think performances like that resonate with me where there's a lot unspoken and the the history of the character and the backstory of the character is in the fabric of that performance. And I like that. And he had that here. And I, I thought he was amazing. Um, and it's, it's you know, again, maybe on second viewing, I w- that opinion would change one way or another. Chapin, you seem to like it more. Uh, Jeremy, I know you saw it recently. You didn't like it as much. But uh, this is sticking with my initial reaction from when I saw the movie. Um, I thought he was great. I I think it's an interesting thing to point out. And I um, suggested this for us. And maybe we can do it next time on The Fixies. But... Um, of, of including the category of editing. I, I felt that, that and, and Lee, you and I spoke about this during the podcast, that um, A Star is Born had some problems with the editing. Um, and it's obviously an art form that is hard to sort of, uh, you know, unpack and right. investigate. It's, and it's, I, you don't notice it unless you it's You don't notice it, no. Bad. Um, and it's hard to understand when it's really, really good. And I think um, he, he, the editor from *A Star Is Born* is the same editor that, um, uh, that uh, you know, from uh, *Silver Linings Playbook* and uh, all those um, David O. Russell films. And I, I, you know, you see the connection kind of in the editing between those two films. It just didn't quite work as much. And I feel like Sam Elliott's performance specifically was affected by that by that editing problem. Yeah, I, again, I just think the writing um, maybe for me distracted me way too much and it took away from his performance because I couldn't get over it. I could hear, I could see the script on the page as as he was talking, sure. um, which, you know, just based on that, I can't, like, I, yeah. I can't have that opinion of him sure, saying he sure. a good job. I understand that. <clears throat> What's your, All right, my your number, number two. Yeah. My number two has already been mentioned, so this is gonna it's gonna come down to the wire. It is Tom Waits in the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Interesting. Uh, right. My favorite performance of that whole compilation. All right, Chapin. Okay, number one. Well, just to seal it off. My number one is Tom Waits in the Ballad of Buster oh, Scruggs. Oh, I don't know who's gonna win this. I gotta do some math here. This is gonna be tough. <laughs> uh, this was, I mean, that, the the golden. What was it? What was the name of this segment, please? Uh, All, gold Canyon, All Gold Canyon. All Gold Canyon. I think that might have been my favorite story of this year. Uh, I wish the rest of the movie was like this. I love him in it. I love everything about this segment, and it was just him. And uh, he was certainly the the best actor but of you know uh but in his little segment but it was one of five or six segments so he had to be best supporting but i absolutely loved him okay yeah, and it, it's i think it's worth talking about uh buster scruggs himself what's that actor's name oh uh, uh yeah Tim blake nelson yeah he i think he did a great job as well but so 
Don't want to forget him. All right, number one. My number one is Timothy Chalamet from Beautiful Boy. This is the performance of the year. My number one is also Timothy Chalamet from A Beautiful Boy. Oh, wow. I I agree. I think it was by far my favorite performance of the year. Really? Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure anything came close. This is an unbelievable performance. And you guys had him in supporting, too. Interesting. Yeah, we had that conversation, too. I mean, you could certainly make the argument that he was the lead, but I followed suit with the other uh, award ceremonies, award uh, award shows um, that have been putting him in the supporting category. Looking back, you know, maybe I should switch him and Daniel Kaluuya. I mean, I don't know. Would that give him the edge? How much would that? Uh, he, no, so can't we'll switch. No switching. See. Yeah, no all switching. Right, We're going right. to have to wait and see. But, yeah, I mean, I that performance was on another level. I think part of it had to do with he was so much better than everybody else in that movie, which is interesting to hear you, Lee, talk about having two other nominations from that movie because I yep. think he just blew everyone out of the water that it made everybody else seem silly honestly um he was doing stuff that i'd never seen before i i was so captivated by him every time he was on screen it was the small moments and nothing was ever showy even though he had to be showy at at points it wasn't like hey i'm doing this to be showy it's it's like this is what's happening to this character right now and like i mean often like a rather like unattractive kind of Oh, so on a track. He went. He it, it was dirty. It was a dirty performance in in a very good way. Um, I don't know. I just I, I I can't wait to see what else he can do. It's like it's it's. I felt like I saw something new in acting that I haven't seen before, and that's really fun to discover. Interesting. Wow. It doesn't happen very often. It's it's happened to me maybe five times you know a daniel day lewis performance an edward norton performance um a meryl streep performance but he did something i i i had never seen before and i was excited to see it wow all Um, right lee what is it yeah so yeah i mean i i don't know what else to add to to what jeremy said i totally agree the fixie goes to by the narrowest of margins timothy chalamet wow what was was 13 uh, points to Tom Waits, 12 points. So moving on now to best screenplay. Um, and we combine adapted and original screenplay into one category here. Um, as far as I'm concerned, that should just be the case anyway. A screenplay is a screenplay. Uh, but I will kick things off with my number five. It is Barry Jenkins for If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, you guys are describing this movie, at least alluding to the fact that this was perhaps forgettable for you guys um mm-hmm. that aside i liked how they structured this movie and how they utilized the flashbacks to develop and uh at least get you to invest in this relationship um so that you could follow the story in present day i i, I liked that um that structure and i thought it worked really well i liked um the development of their relationship i liked the um references to their past and their childhood growing up together and how that blossomed into the relationship that they have. I thought that was all sprinkled in nicely. Um, and yeah, I mean, again, I, I, I don't, I, I've sort of forced myself to stick with my initial reactions on this movie. As we discussed on the podcast, um, we had the audio issues in the theater and our opinions may not have been um, totally accurate to the, to the movie. So as a result, I've just, 
sort of stuck with everything I felt after, you know, leaving the theater in the few days following. Um, and, yeah. you know, like I said then, I, I think this was a movie I really liked and the screenplay was a big part of that. Yeah, that's interesting you say that because I thought the screenplay was the worst part of it, really? of the movie. And, and yeah, I thought the lines were terrible. Interesting. And yeah, so I'd be interested to see if that stays at number five. Upon seeing you it, see again. it again. No, I mean, and I'm, I, yeah. I admittedly am curious about that too. Um, for me, it, like I said, I, and, and there's a certain part I agree, like the the kind of you know uh, big scene in the living room where they're all arguing. I felt that there was some dialogue that felt forced and and written, for lack of a better term. But um, it was it was beyond that. This for what I liked about the script, it was the structure of the script and the structure of the story. Hold on, guys. I got to take a, cool. a one second break. Okay. One second. Uh, <laughs> this is way longer than one second. <laughs> I know he, he like, left my the building. Pick. Yeah, he was gonna throw <laughs> up outside. <laughs> All right, sorry. Okay, Lee, who do you want uh, to Jeremy's go again? Up for number five. Okay. All right, my number five. Um, so with this category, I, I tried to, you know, it, not only did the writing have to be good, but I liked something a little unique and different and original. So for that, my number five is Drew Goddard. He wrote Bad Times at the El Royale. I don't know if you guys, uh, Lee. I think you caught this movie, right? I did. Yep. Yeah, it was. It it was different. It was interesting. It was um, a character piece based in one one place that you sort of had to piece together as the film went along, and I think he did a good job managing the bizarre tone with these unique characters. <laughs> I mean, it didn't. It wasn't overall a great movie, but I think the screenplay especially showed a lot of promise. It was almost Tarantino esque, mm -hmm. and yeah. I, I, I want to see more from this guy. Yeah, it had a you know genre subversion quality to it. It reminded me of uh, Cabin in the Woods, not quite to that extent. Yeah, um, which he also. Oh, wrote. he did. Oh, that's a, no wonder yeah. it reminded me of that. Um, <laughs> weird. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Um, you know, perhaps a, a good script that wasn't, uh, as well executed. Yeah, but it was different, you know, it was different. It was something where, you know, you, you realize that the writer here has a unique voice sure. and yeah. that's something that's hard to come by and something you're, you know, we, we're always searching for. And I don't, I, by no means is this a bad movie. I was actually pretty entertained by it okay okay uh my number five is the screenplay for the death of stalin great who, pick. who wrote that uh well four people wrote it but um armando anucci is the director who is he created um vice and uh the tv show vice um yeah yeah uh 
Okay, good. I want to make sure this was the right. Yeah. So, um, uh, but four, three other people helped him write it. So okay. interesting enough. Um, this is not, not a movie um, that'll appear on any other list, but I just found it wickedly funny. Um, it's about Stalin's death and like the power vacuum that occurred afterwards, but it's just told, you know, much like an episode of Vice with like, you know, how foolish all these people are. And it was just, it was just laugh out loud funny. Yeah. Um, this was going to be one of those and, movies that I had in our little in between segments that I desperately wanted to bring up because it had some of the funniest scenes of the year easily um, yeah. between yes. the scene at the beginning and the radio in the uh, recording booth where he needed to uh record uh, a whole concert over again for because stalin needed yeah. it and the one where jeffrey tamborn where 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 uh i forget the guy's name but he blamed the, the group was together and he blamed every one of them and jeffrey tamborn just sort of stepped aside and said no he's blaming all of you he said you and you yeah. so there was some of my like the funniest scenes easily of the year um in this movie and uh of course, a lot of credit goes to the writing. So, um, fun, some funny, some of the funniest scenes, screenplay list. But Chapin, you allude that it might not show up again. Uh, I didn't see this. Is you recommend it? It's something I should check out. Yeah, I would. Okay, yeah, definitely. I would. All right, uh, my number four: Luke Davies and Felix Van Groningen. Beautiful boy. Um, Man, I can't. So this is what's interesting. It's like I was blown away, obviously, by Timothy Chalamet's performance in that. But I did not particularly like this movie in general. Interesting. Interesting. Um, I um, when it comes to the script here, um, there was one particular thing that was very intentionally emphasized and the direction deserves some credit as well. But I think was really important and. It's the upbringing and the strong family and all of these things that seem like they're really good. So you question what happened. And um, I don't know, maybe as a parent, this is something that resonates with me now that wouldn't a year and a half ago. But, you know, to see this kid with a loving family, um, you know, a good upbringing, living in, you know, a relatively affluent environment to fall into this is sort of scary. I have to be honest. Um, Right. And that's on the page. And look, these, this movie focuses very much on characters and those characters had to be written and written well. And granted it's based on a true story, but um, I think the script deserves quite a bit of credit for how this movie turned out. Yeah, I, I, I like the movie a lot. I was sort of surprised by how much I liked it. Um, I, I found it very kind of, um, it, it, I don't know, it was beautiful, and, and, and but also it was it was sort of an easy watch, which I was, you know, maybe not, should, oh shouldn't God, have been no, the case. <laughs> yeah, I didn't find yeah, it an easy watch either. I mean, as far as just... But, but I mean, I guess I, it's like with the music. Yeah, yeah no, I and, understand that, yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was, yeah. so... The subject matter was not easy, but the 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 stylist, no. stylistic choices um, made it. I don't know an enjoyable watch. I suppose is the better example uh, thing you're saying. Yeah, say. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I also found I, that was one of those movies. I found the editing to be a bit off. Really, bizarrely, yeah. Um, but anyhow, we're talking about screenplay right now, and it's my number four, right? Yep. Yeah, it's yep. Uh, the same one Chapin just picked. It's the death of Stalin. 
Um, it's one of those that is is on the list almost solely for the dialogue and the interaction between the characters. I mean, what's so interesting about it is is it's about this very momentous historical um, significant event that happened, and they did it in a way where they have all English and American actors playing Russians without accents. And, it's like my dream come true. Yeah, and but it, in a in a comedy, <laughs> like there's really no reason to do it this way, um, to tell this story this way. But they did it and they stuck with it and it worked and it was, it was good. Right. All right, Chapin. Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. Um, uh, my number four is uh, Vice, written by Adam McKay. Um, I wanted to find a way to award this movie, and I think the place to do it is in screenplay. I, I really liked Vice. Um, it's not going to make my um, top whatever. It's not amongst my best movies, but um, I liked it a lot. I think it's a significant film. Um, I think it's an important film, and um, I think a lot of that has to do with the writing. I, I, I Again, I, I noted in my intro, or in your intro, and rather uh, talk, going back to what you asked, Lee, and... I, I think um, a lot of movies this year were, were very um, kind of innovative, and I found Vice to be an innovative film in a lot of ways, and I'm going to chalk that up to the screenplay. I thought it was a bold way of telling the story, and I know it didn't always work for us. All these different elements didn't work for us, um, but I admire his his um, the, the, the effort. I admire um, the way he tried to do different things with the film. And um, I think that came from the yeah, screenplay. Here's where I'll agree with you. And I, I was not a fan of Vice, as our listeners may know. Um, you know, take the take the um, scene in the middle where they roll the end credits. You know, on the page, yeah. that's really smart. Um, it's sort of a smart, you know, cut between two, you know, points in the timeline of his life. Um, and additionally, you know, the, the Shakespearean dialogue and the things like that and the scene the the alfred molina scene that we spent a little bit of time on on the page all of that and i I actually liked a lot of those things in the movie they were some of the takeaways for me but on the page especially i think those are are really smart choices on trying to do something new so i'll agree with you there um the execution again i think was something that left a bit to be desired but it's a good pick yeah yeah, I'd, i'd agree that the writing was probably the best other than maybe Christian Bale's performance, which I know we disagree on, but um, it was probably the best aspect of that film. Okay. My number three is Alfonso Cuaron for Roma. Um, I still sort of question. So I I shat on the, the Oscars for having it be a screenplay. And yeah, well, here's a, (laughs) you're now shitty on Lee. Here's the deal. I, I, I still question to a certain extent, I mentioned this on the podcast, the, the necessity of this movie to be made, like the, for this story to be told. Like this is a, a, a personal story for Alfonso Cuaron. Whether or not it makes any difference one way or another for us to see it is, is you know, up for debate. But I've seen this movie for a second time. Um, and, you know, for a movie that's kind of slow and absent of sort of obvious plot points, the fact that you uh, have these characters drawn that you are invested in means something was done right with the script. Um, and I think it's interesting to sort of see how, and a lot, again, it, it, this is probably one of the hardest areas to separate direction and movie and screenplay. But here I think the way he creates this kind of 
sort of three worlds the 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 world that they all live in together um that cleo lives in with uh the family that she works for the world that she sort of lives in on her own um you know either with her fellow maids with her with with um uh Furman, uh you know and then the world without her the family without her i think are drawn really nicely and written really nicely and it's executed great um there's no denying that but i think the script deserves a lot of credit actually see i i don't like i i i feel like anything could have kind of been written into those in between moments and it's more it it was 100 percent more about how he told the story with the camera and how we saw the story than what was said or how it was put together on the page. I almost feel like you could take that screenplay, throw it up in the air, and then put it back together, and you'd still have a great film. Well, he did. He took but, his screenplay, threw it in the air. I and mean, then... no, no, no one had a, the script. Right. There was no script. But like, really? think about uh, like there's like little things that are just so subtle and so but so important. Like you think about when um, when Cleo is in labor and they go to the hospital and she's with the grandmother and she she's checking her in, but she doesn't know anything about her. It's a it's like a reference. But I feel like, like that's more yeah. the direction. In, but that's on in, the page. In that's that in moment, the like that's there. Like that's written, or or maybe it wasn't. But whatever. I mean, I think it's. I think that's stuff that was intentionally, uh, you know, drawn when they were putting this story together and creating these characters. Like they, you know, the, that pre-production meeting was, yes, this is a, a person that's very much a part of this family, but they only really know her to this extent. That was, I think, part of the screenplay. I think well, then there the goes to the debate of like, it, what is the screenplay? Yeah, how, how do you, you separate, separate that? And like I said, this is might be one of the hardest ones to do that with. And I, you know, maybe inevitably that's going to happen when you have the same writer as the director. Um, you know, it's his vision. This is clearly his vision, his personal story, his, you know, uh, so maybe. Uh, Look, how, how I distinguish extent. it, how I distinguish it is if you have a screenplay and you gave it to five directors and if it's a good screenplay, if it's adaptation or, you know, Eternal Sunshine or Chinatown or something, you're going to have five good movies. They're not going to be as great or whatever as, um, you know, the ones we saw maybe, but there'll be five good movies. But if you took Roma and gave it to five different directors other than Alfonso Caron, you'd have a mess. That's a, because that's a that really is, good point. I don't that know is that his mess, movie. But, it's a re- but see, that's why this is a difficult argument, because I think that's actually a really good way to separate the two. And it's a really smart kind of uh, example to use. But because this is his story, like this is the story of his childhood, how do you do that? Like, how do you say, okay, I'm going to give this to somebody else? Like, you can't put it in that You vacuum. don't. Uh, you just don't nominate it for a screenplay fixie. Well, no, you do, because the, script, the, the script is the story and the screenplay, or whatever you want to call it, whether the absence of one, the story was there first. And the way that he created a... Uh, you know, a cinematic vision for that, you know, through uh, using that, I think was an additional credit to him. But the story, it's in, it, in and of itself, I think was needed to be there first. Chapin, what do you think? Yeah, it's it's not on my list. Um, but uh, 
There are a bunch of movies that are not on my list that I thought were great. So I I, I agree. I think I don't think it was uh, an achievement in screenplay. So I disagree and with you, Lee, and agree with you, John. Right, well, you it's tied for it. first place right now with Death of Stalin. So if nobody has any other picks, okay. It would be. <laughs> is it my no, is, my, is no. it my turn number three? Uh, oh, my number sorry. three. Um, my number three is. Uh, from a couple brothers that seem to be uh, on screenplay lists all the time, and it is A Ballad of Buster Scruggs from The Coens. And I, the reason I really want to put this here was because it's, such, it's even a departure for them to do this sort of anthology of a bunch of different stories that aren't even intertwined in any way other than time, sort of time period and yeah, the old, of the West. old West in a, in, a, in America. Um, maybe thematically mm-hmm. you could find some ties, but, um, it, and, and the fact that all the stories are so different, both in the stories they tell, but also tonally and structurally. Um, it was, they were just fun, they were fun to watch. And I think the writing, obviously, the Coen brothers, have such a unique voice and it's there um so yeah my number three great great pick um my number three is uh black klansman um now that as i go back and think about and listen to re-listen to our podcast on it i think this one must have been you know one of the more interesting movies we reviewed this year um in terms of how we all saw it and you know, ultimately, I think the reason that movie worked for you guys in a lot of ways and for me was that it was kind of conventional and like, uh, you know, he, you know, um, what was the metaphor you used, Jeremy? I think, you know, you don't always have to use a hammer um, to get the points across. Um, but I was also critical, a little bit of Spike Lee, because in a, in a year full of innovation, I didn't feel like a very innovative filmmaker did, you know, had a did did some very innovative work with a particularly, um, you know, uh, story that was poignant you know, and ro- or you know, timely, poignant and yeah, exactly. But I, I, I thought the screenplay was great. I thought the the idea of telling the story, especially now, um, was really, really, really smart. And I, I love the way they told it. It was funny. I think a lot of what you know, what what you said, Jeremy, about um, it being kind of conventional and traditional and 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 um, not hitting those points too hard came from the screenplay. It was just it felt like very much like kind of a, a cop thriller in a way, you know, guys in these bigger ideas. And I, I just admire this film a lot. Um, and this is where I felt like I'd like to give it some. I, um, I thought the screenplay was the problem with this movie. <laughs> um, I you know, like I said on the podcast, I didn't like the characterization of the KKK. Um, uh, yeah. I thought that that was that he he like played it safe in the screenplay. Like you know, he didn't want to stir up Spike Lee. Didn't want to stir up any controversy with how those characters were portrayed. And then I also I didn't like the the side story of the Black Panther movement. I didn't think that that was well integrated into the script. And um, yeah, I I thought. Um, the screenplay was the weakest part here in this case on that movie. I I, I go down the middle okay. on that. Well, I guess we disagree. No, I go down the the middle on that because um, I you know I don't want to give the screenplay too much credit for how much I enjoyed that movie. Uh, I don't know if it was necessarily that as much as the direction. 
which, you know, uh, I know you guys felt like he could have been a little bolder, but I thought he, he towed that line really well. Um, and I definitely did not think the screenplay was bad by any means. I think it kind of hit the right tone. Um, it wasn't, it didn't, the screenplay in and of itself wasn't showy or amazing for me enough to put it on this list. But I think for what uh, Spike Lee wanted to do there, it was, it, it was the correct decision. All right. Okay. My number two is Joel and Ethan Cohen for the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Um, Jeremy, you summed up a lot of what I was going to say. The one thing I'll add is what's amazing about what they can do is, you know, they can always seem to find something new with what they do with their scripts and their movies, all while keeping their signature. Um, you know, they're always... Yeah, that's, that's a great way to put it. You know, they always it's have almost a, like an they, intelligence they, and a humor, and it's just... But it's always something new. Yeah, they don't want to get bored doing this. Yeah, and it's like sort you of know? like they're... They, want to cha- they challenge themselves. Yeah, which is great, and I think that's what elevates their work and keeps, you know, us so interested in everything that they do. Um and yeah, look, I I loved the idea of the anthology, and I, I, I mentioned on the podcast, I love that we got to see all these different stories taking place within the genre of the Western, which I love. So yeah, it was it was great. I, I think the screenplay was fantastic. And, and I love the fact that it's ga- garnered all this controversy about whether it's adapted or original because it's based on a story that they wrote, and can it be adapted if the same people wrote it? And it's the, you know, and that's why we only have one category for yeah. screenplay. Yeah, you know, cut through all the noise. All right, my number two is Deborah Davis and Tony McNamara for The Favorite. Um, and the reason I love this screenplay so much is uh, I love movies that have dueling characters where you don't know where it's going to end and how they're going to end up facing off with each other in the end. You know that you know it's coming, but you don't know how it's quite going to get there. And I thought they managed that beautifully in The Favorite. Uh, that's also my number the two. <laughs> yes, right? we're on number two. Yeah, that's also my number two. Um, I agree. Uh, I, I, I um, you know, I, I'm a sucker, Jeremy, as you are a sucker for yep. structure. I'm a sucker for great dialogue. This movie had great and dialogue. Uh, I love I love the addition uh, uh, of fucks and cunts, as I mentioned on the initial podcast in this one. And, um, you know, I think it's, uh, although he was involved in the, the writing of it, he, uh, Yorgos Lanthimos did not write this movie, but it, and I think, I think that's, I think that's a good thing, but you, you know, you can feel like Susan of his, oh, of for his, sure. it's his you know, world still of yeah. him in it. Yeah. His world, but like without the sort of heavy handedness of those other two films. Um, and it works really, really nicely. Yeah. It's, right. it's one of my favorite for, for structure and dialogue easily this year. Okay. Um, all right, my number one. Uh, I'm fascinated to see what. Yeah, one's I am on. actually too. Wow. I don't know. Uh, it's possible from this is mine is coming from a movie we haven't talked about amongst each other at all. So I don't know your thoughts on it. So it is Boots Riley for Sorry to Bother You. That is also my number one. It is okay. Um, look here. Wow. This is I, it's, so it's I the love, most original screenplay yeah, of the year. I don't think easily. it was particularly well executed. Um, 
it wasn't bad, but I don't think it it executed what it was trying to do quite to the extent that the screenplay did. I love these ideas of merging reality with fantasy, just creating a, a real world uh, movie, but putting in these pieces that are unrealistic or, or fantastical. I, I always like that in movies. And this movie does that. And it's in a world that like we legit live in right now. And I just think it was interesting. And it's a hard thing to pull off, and the script totally did. Um, you know, the movie, I think, well, maybe perhaps we'll talk more about later, um, but for me, it, it wasn't as well executed as I would have liked, but um, I thought it was a really smart, intelligent script. Yeah, the script is, is, is smart, and it's funny, and it's unique, and it goes places that you don't expect it to go, but it all is very well structured, and it all, in the world it, it, that it takes place, makes sense and kind of comes together mm -hmm. in an unexpected way that works. And for me, that's great screenplay. That's, you know, uh, you, can't, you can't ask for anything more. And um, that's why, for me, this is the number one screenplay of the year. I haven't seen it, so I'm excited to see great. it now. Yeah. And your number one, Chapin? My number one is the old Ballad of Buster Ooh, Scruggs. this is gonna be a close one then. Got, uh... Anything to add? On what we've discussed, while I do while I do the no, math. No, I mean it, it is it is always a pleasure to uh, watch the Coen Brothers movies. Um, and but this one in particular, I thought was just just a joy. And um, I, I I I I warmed. I actually really enjoyed, and I thought it was very very pleasurable, and particularly uh, nicely suited to Netflix for it to be an anthology. And um, I think it'll serve to, to to go back and watch the ones we liked, um, uh, and avoid the ones we didn't like, um, you know, in the future. And I think I, I not that we didn't like any of them, but you know, the ones we liked less, I should say. And um, that's a yeah. that's an excellent point. I, I so I rewatched um, Buster Scruggs, but it was actually the easiest rewatch because I sort of did it in stages. I would just watch a 15, 20 minute chapter and then yeah. do something else and come back the next day and watch another one and I was able to rewatch the whole movie without feeling like it was interrupted do you because I know we talked about like our favorite segments Lee on and Jeep and on second viewing does it does it stay the same or did it's, you switch it's close. it up all gold canyon might be my favorite now where um the girl who got rattled was which is still mm -hmm. up there that is still definitely one of the better ones um uh, yeah, not it, it didn't change. My, my my least favorite is still the final one. Um, although the opening Ballad of Buster Scruggs one, I liked a lot more the second time around. All right, do we have a fixie? Who's the winner? And the fixie goes to Joel and Ethan Cohen for the Ballad of Buster Scruggs. Wow, how much did they beat? Wow. Twelve Boots Riley. Twelve points. Boots Riley received ten points. The favorite. Eight points. Wow, that's exciting. Wow. Yeah, it's uh, only one. Uh, Buster Scruggs the only one on all three of our lists. Well, the favorite. No, I didn't was. have a favorite. Oh, okay. Sorry. Okay. Um, so we should do a wrap up here, right? This will be the end of episode one. Oh Jesus! Really? <laughs> yeah. I thought we'd pass that already. We still have four categories left. <laughs> Oh, yeah, do we actor, really? Yeah, actor, director, and, and picture. Jesus right. Christ. Okay, God. 
Okay, so that will wrap. <laughs> that will wrap things up dinner. for this first edition of the Fixie Award nomination show. Please be sure to tune in next week for the final four categories of the Fixie nominations and winners. And we encourage you to email us at feedback at getyourfilmfixpodcast.com with your thoughts on our picks, your picks for each of the categories that we've discussed, as well as your picks for actor, actress, director, and picture, which we will be discussing next week. Uh, As always, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, We encourage you to rate us on iTunes. Uh, And thank you for listening, and we look forward to... Uh, next episode when we reveal the next four categories for the Fixies. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee. Enjoying my coffee.